All right, everybody, here we are. Today's lecture from allies to first shots of the revolution. And what we're going to cover here is the French and Indian War and the aftermath of the French and Indian War and how we get to those first shots of the American Revolutionary War. So I'm going to go over three main parts of the podcast today. The first one is going to be called The French and Indian War Changes America. And we're going to discuss a little bit about the colonists' response and how that starts to set us up for revolution. The second section is going to be titled The Emergence of American Nationalism. And what we're going to take a look at there is how America creates an identity that we associate with today like kind of the word American, right? And then taxes lead to war. We're going to start taking a look at all those those fun taxes that you remember hearing about previously, like the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, uh, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, and whatnot. So here we go. So the French and Indian War changes America. What we're starting to take a look at here is who owns a specific piece of dirt. And when you look at historically, we have a lot of wars that get fought over a piece of dirt and who has a claim to it. And I know you're probably rolling your eyes right now and going, I don't really understand why this matters, this piece of dirt. But there's two main reasons why. One, we're going to take a look at the money side of things whether that's controlling a resource that w- or maybe controlling a way to a trade route, um, you know, anything along those lines, right, that you want to try and protect and make sure you have on your side because it means it's an advantage for you over your competitors. Or the other side is purely about power and just not wanting to admit that maybe you did something wrong or you just don't want to lose because you have... In ego and when we take a look at our leaders historically the smallest most insignificant piece of dirt can lead to a full-on war because we don't want to seem weaker in the eyes of others so when the French and Indian War starts out in 1754 in America we're taking a look at the British holdings right so what do the British say that they own they hold they hold the coastal area from Maine to Georgia and most of the things um, west to the Appalachian Mountains. And so if you look on a map, it's kind of a skinny, a skinny row on a map, but there's an insane amount of people there and the British are starting to feel like they're getting a little overcrowded. So they start to like to push west of the Appalachian Mountains. That's where the problem starts to come in is because the French say, well, we own everything from the Mississippi River east to the Appalachian Mountains. So if the British were to start pushing west past the Appalachian Mountains, they go into French territory, and now we're going to fight over dirt, right? So we're taking a specific look at the Appalachian Mountain Range and to the Mississippi River. Most of the disputed areas between the British and the French are going to be present-day Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, Southern Ohio, and... It's really going to be in Ohio where a lot of the fighting is going to start and most of the notable battles take place. 
I'm actually not going to get into the battles of the French and Indian War too much, uh, mostly because they're boring, they're not super well known, and the war is more significant in the sense of its overall, its overall meaning to our history and less in terms of the actual battles and names. Now, remember, it's called the French and Indian War, right? So not only do we have the British and the French making claims to pieces of dirt, but remember, there's always been another people here, right? The Native Americans. And one of the interesting things about the way that Native Americans will approach this war is kind of in a sense of like, we never lost, right? We never officially lost this land to another chief, because within tribes, you could gain access to the chief, to the leader, right? And one of the struggles that Native Americans are going to have in understanding the, the white world, right? The British and the French is starting to understand that, hey, a general can be a chief, right? They view the king of the country as a chief. And so to them, until they actually have to give their land over to the king, their land was never officially lost. It was more like the loss of a big battle. You retreat, you lick your wounds, and you live to fight another day. And this has already been after like King Philip's War and a number of other smaller wars where the Native Americans were continually getting pushed off their lands and more and more into the interior. The French had never really specifically wanted wanted to hold uh, major parts of land in the United States. The French were more in, interested in the resources of the United States really than setting up, you know, official states and or provinces and, and really like city building like the British were. And so that's why to the Native Americans, it was a little bit more palatable to deal with the French because they're saying, well, you're taking our resources, but you're not taking our land. So we can kind of make a make a deal out of this but even still the Native Americans do expect that if their land was to be was to be won back from the British that the French would then give that land back to Native Americans but we ultimately also know from different sources of evidence that that was actually never going to be the case anyway so this next section questions about land claims right who owns what and the big thing here is you need to understand the Ohio River. Before the Mississippi River becomes the big major highway in the United States, it was the Ohio River really until this westward expansion in the 1800s um, and the Louisiana Purchase from Napoleon Bonaparte. It's the Ohio River. The Ohio River is the only thing that's going to, the only close waterway where these factories and these shops in the north can get these goods back down to the middle and southern states. And whoever owns the Ohio River is basically going to be owning the money transfers in America. And if, you're, if you own the money transfers, you have the right to determine taxes. You have the right to say who's allowed to go into what waterways. I mean, you get a police, it, you're sitting on a gold mine if you own the Ohio River. And it goes from... Western Pennsylvania to the southern tip of Illinois in present day in present day America. It gives access to the Mississippi River. But like I said, whoever controls the Ohio River, you get to control that money and that power. And that's what it's really all about is as we're starting to figure out just how giant the land of America is and all its resources, 
you also have to figure out a way to transport those resources around and even out of the country. You know, Ohio River is the key, right? So this is going to be our main, our main fight, right? All right. So we talked about the holdings. We talked about land claims. Next, we're going to move to this thing called the Albany Conference of 1754. And that's Albany as in Albany, New York, the capital, right? So... The British Board of Trade in America meets to figure out a response to the fighting with the French and the natives over land claims west of the Appalachian Mountains. And you're looking at the British subjects right now in New York talking about, hey, I have investments, right? And my investments are built upon the idea that they're going to be safe and we need to safeguard these things, even with the military, um, if necessary, right? And so the British began to bribe minor Indian chiefs for land. And it's important to note that it was minor Indian chiefs because we're either talking about smaller tribes where it's really easy to grab their land or we're talking about minor chiefs within a tribe who are looking for a power play, a way to move up the ranks and become the main chief of the tribe. And so for a lot of these minor chiefs, it was like, hey, I'll make a deal with the British, even if it's in bad faith and even if it's a bad deal. Because if I can prove that I'm preserving my people to the rest of my tribe, that will that should elevate me above the other leaders. And the British took complete advantage of the Native Americans with these with these deeds, and they would start to kick the natives off the land um, at gunpoint if necessary, right? And a lot of this was to expel the the natives out of Pennsylvania. But of course, when you're looking at some of these tribes like the Huron and the Ottawa, right? Where are they going to go? Well, they're, they're going to go west of the Appalachian Mountains and they're going to go join the French. And so as the British are conducting these deals in bad faith, they're just giving the French more and more allies. Now, the Iroquois nation was initially very friendly with the British, but as they see more and more of these bad deals, they're, they're starting to get really pissed off. Right? They're getting openly angry. They're going to openly dispute the ownership of the land. And things are looking really bad for the British. That's when this important guy steps in. His name is Benjamin Franklin. And he's obviously going to become incredibly important during the revolution in that time period. And then also later with the Constitution. He's really kind of like the grandfather of our country. Right, this guiding hand and philosopher who's raising up this next generation and has an influence on people like Hamilton and Jefferson and Madison, right? These guys that are really going to oversee the construction of America. And so here's Benjamin Frank- Franklin's rationale. He says, if the Native Americans can somehow confederate together and as a tribe, and it's also important to note when we talk about a, tri- a tribe like the Iroquois Nation, that could have anywhere from six to 16 smaller tribes as all part of it, right? When you, maybe a better example would be like the Ute Indian Nation, where you had the Utes, but the Paiutes are also part of it, right? And so you can have a lot of little tribes. And he says, look, if all these little tribes can form together and and form like the Iroquois Nation or the Algonquian Confederacy or the Powhatan Confederacy, right? If they can make these bigger, massive tribes and they can learn how to work together but also still maintain an identity, then we as like civilized Europeans should be able to do the same thing. And he he's the first person to make this 
united call to say we should all be an American union, right? We should all be we should all be together. We should all be on the same team. Like you can be a Pennsylvanian, but you should be an American. And the British do not like this plan, largely because the British also foresee, hey, if all the Americans were to to come together, what is to stop them from from coming together against us? And so the plan is rejected by the British superiors and it creates a lot of disharmony um, among the Americans who are questioning why the British would do this because it seemed like it was something that would be good, right? Let's unite all Americans, not just the ones in the North, not just the ones in the middle, not just the ones in the South, but let's unite everybody. And it, that lack of unity is going to be one of the things that nearly cost the British the victory in the French and Indian War, right? And so this starts to lead into the last section about the French and Indian War and how it changes America. So let's talk about the issues of the war. It starts with a man named William Pitt, he becomes prime minister of England in 1757. So the war has already started. He inherits a war. It's not going well. And he has to be the fixer, right? He has to come in and fix the problem. And he does a lot of politicking in order to get into this spot where he, like many, many politicians, says, I really want to go down in history as being somebody who is a known figure. I want to be remember for doing something great and historically you win a war right if you want to be known for something great go win a war and so that's his whole idea he's he's ready to pull out all the stops he's ready to do whatever it takes to make sure the british come out on top and so he makes a promise and this is the key that really starts to spark the revolution william pitt promises that the war this french and indian war this whole thing is going to be paid for by the king the Americans do not like the war. They do not understand why there is a war on their, so, on their soil. They feel like it's a European conflict that just spilled over. And why are they having to pay the price for these idiots in, in Europe that can't figure out who should go over or who should stay on what side of a line, right? They're very, very against this war. But William Pitt says, hey, listen, I know you're against this war, but guess what? We're going to pay for it, all right? And once we pay for it, we're going to take all that land that the French have. We're going to go all the way to the Mississippi. We're, we're not going to stop till we have everything. And then you don't have to worry about the Appalachian Mountains anymore. You can push on all the way, all the way west. Go to the Mississippi. We'll give you land as payment if necessary, right? And even though the colonists don't like this, it's kind of like, well, I mean, if this is the promise that I get to have, like, I'm going to get paid, to fight, I don't have to pay for the war, and I can expand my business, I can expand my investments, I can go get those resources west of the Appalachian Mountains, I can go farm, right, and I can take up as many acres as I can clear. Hey, this sounds pretty good, right? And so not only does William Pitt start to make things right with the colonists, William Pitt sends advisors to go make things right with the Iroquois Nation, which is going to be the dominant native tribe. And he says, all right, listen, Iroquois, if you help us defeat the French, right, then we are going to 
we're going to start to return some of your native lands, right? We're going to start to honor some of your traditions a little bit. And the Iroquois are pretty suspicious about this, but the French never really did anything to the Iroquois either in the sense to make them feel good enough to where they should join the French. And, and so the Iroquois had kind of grown a little bit more agitated with the French of like, well, why wouldn't you want our help, you know? So the Iroquois take this deal with the British again, kind of a deal in bad faith. And so we get to the end of the war in 1764, right? The British refuse to allow settlement of the, west of the Appalachian Mountains in order to honor this promise to the Iroquois. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why in a few minutes. But this is going to be a big deal, right? William Pitt makes these promises, not only to the colonists, but to the Iroquois themselves. And he's going to break his promises. But it's also not just him that's going to break these promises. It's going to be his successor, George Grenville. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But um, the war ends 1763, 1764. Now the British own everything from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River, right? But the British are about to start making these new laws that are going to upset a lot of people. And that's going to be something I'm going to get into in this third section, right? Taxes lead to war. Okay, this second section is called the emergence of American nationalism. And when I talk about this, essentially what I mean is an identity, right? A personality, as in, who do we want to be as Americans? If we were to start to describe ourselves, what are the words that we're going to, to use? And the word American is where I want to I wanna start, right? So after the French and Indian War is over, the fighting's done. Americans are, were proud of being British because you're part of the most dominant nation on the face of the earth. But they're proud of being British because the Americans feel like they're now the muscle of the British Empire, right? And so I'm going to say I'm British because I'm the one that wins the wars now, right? And the British are going to keep soldiers in America, right? Soldiers from mainland Britain are going to keep them here in America. Not only to, to just kind of keep an eye on the French and make sure no more conflicts arise, but also to keep an eye on American attitudes. And the Americans immediately recognize this, start to get kind of suspicious, and are like, wait a minute, why are we here? And the, the British were saying, because we don't know if you're British enough anymore. We, we kind of question your loyalty. And this is where British troops are being put into private American homes. And this is breaking parliamentary, parliamentary law, but nobody really cares because... Nobody wants to enforce that part of the law. And British began calling colonists, especially American soldiers, young Kass, which is Dutch, right? Which, and it was supposed to be an insult of sorts, kind of like you're at cheese, right? Young Kass. And as you might be able to think about it for just a moment, you've heard... Yankees, because it's also the name of the most popular baseball team in America, the Yankees, right? And eventually, you know, that's what it turns into. And so newspapers are going to play a pivotal role in starting to shape American personality and identity. 
because newspapers are going to be the thing that creates the word and idea of what it means to be American, right? Because Americans now are feeling insulted. They're feeling like, like they're being a, like they're being treated like a child, right? Like you're not allowing me to do the things I want to do. And the British are like, yeah, because we think you're unruly and we think you're going to rebel. And once that seed is planted, it's like, well, now I guess I've got to rebel since you think I'm going to, right? And I know it's kind of weird, but it's just kind of how it ends up going. So the, the word American, right? The idea of American, it actually starts in newspapers during the war. And it was a way to start to stir up pride with local soldiers, right? And it's not, you're not just a soldier in a British army. You're an American soldier in the British army. You're one of the elite, right? You're the muscle, you know, kind of thing. And it's really used as a compliment. And interesting to note, there's this European philosophical movement going on right now, the Enlightenment, right? And so we have Enlightenment philosophers and we have social contract ideas. And Americans begin to believe any law that is passed by the British should only affect mainland British people. They don't need to affect Americans anymore because Americans are like, hey, we've won our own war. We've governed ourselves for decades. It's time for us to, to take the next step and, and be who we are. And so Americans started to openly and blatantly not follow new British laws, which is going to be that next section, right? These taxes that we know are coming. And so this is where we get the idea and belief called republicanism, just like the political party, right? Republicanism. Um, and this is a belief that state power is antithetical to liberty and should be limited, right? Meaning whoever is governing me, a king, a parliament, whatever it is, right? That, that person's power over me should be limited because I am a responsible human being. I can take care of myself. And if you're going to rule over me, then you should do so not only in a limited fashion, but you should do so in a responsible fashion. And if you can't do, if you can't rule over me in a responsible and a limited fashion, now we're going to have problems, right? And now, again, these are ideas that are starting to come up and being printed in newspapers and getting circulated up and down the eastern seaboard in the United States. And we, the Americans start to begin, authority of rulers should be conditional rather than absolute, right? You should only have power over me in four different ways, for example, right? And if you go beyond those four different ways, well, then I shouldn't have to listen to you. And so as you can see, we're starting to use a social contract and these enlightenment philosophies, and we're starting to build this idea that we don't need to listen to Britain anymore. And as part of that, we really start to take on this part of the social contract that, you know what, maybe it's time to leave because we're about to get a lot of actions taken against us in bad faith, right? We think it's bad government. So... Again, the idea of American identity, it comes from newspapers. It's a way to stir up local pride. And it's really a way to start to separate ourselves away from British as Americans. And it's one thing to walk the walk or talk the talk, I guess. I got, I always get that mixed up. It's one thing to talk the talk. Now you got to walk the walk. And that's this third and final section, right? Taxes lead to war. All right, taxes lead to war. This is one of the more interesting parts, not just of the lecture, but in our history, where 
we actually start to back up our claims of saying, you know, we're going to be an American. We don't feel like we should have to listen to your mainland policies and all that. Like we're going to go out and we're going to do things our way. So George Grenville, I mentioned his name earlier. He becomes prime minister in 1763. And the war is just now ending. William Pitt fulfills his promises, right? He, he wins the war. But now he's got to make sure he can pay for the war. Guess what? The coffers are empty. There's no money in the account anymore. And you have to fulfill these promises to the Iroquois nation. So you got to give them back some of their land. But, oh, wait, I also, I also told the Americans that they could move over there. And so he leaves George Grenville an absolute mess, right? William Pitt inherits the war, wins the war, but then leaves the aftermath to George Grenville. And interestingly, you know, these two are, I believe, brothers-in-law. Like, they're loosely related some way. And this is about to also cause major family rifts. You know, I mean... Family parties were not the same for for these two after this. And Grenville comes in. He notices there's no money in the account. And he doesn't really believe that this agreement with the Iroquois Nation needs to be honored. And so he says, all right, I'm going to start going back on, a, on my promises, which you immediately have to know. The Americans are going to be super pissed. They are going to be so upset and frustrated that this new guy is going to say, no, I'm, I don't have to follow the last guy's laws, right? And, and Grenville is going to start to place taxes on Americans and say, yeah, but you fought the war and now you've got to pay for it. He also sends over an extra 10,000 troops in America to help, help enforce these new laws. And the presence of more military does not go over well with American colonists. They're actually really, really upset because not only do they just not like the physical sight of them around and these tax collectors, but they also have to have them in their homes, right? They have to feed them. They have to do their laundry. They have to put up with their behaviors and attitude and all the condescending remarks. And George Grenville says, that's just the price of things, right? Until you pay us back for the war, this is just the price of things. So here's an interesting note. Americans paid 25% of what the mainland British did in taxes. So for every $100 somebody in mainland Britain is paying in taxes, Americans pay 25. And Grenville sees this disparity and says, no, 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 no. It's time to close the gap. Even if I double that from 25 to 50, the bank account's going to start to replenish itself and it's going to be kind of a slow but long thing and he says i can't necessarily have a slow but long repayment plan plan i've got to start moving it up and so the taxes start with the infamous sugar act of 1764 so as you can imagine this places a tariff on sugar and sugar-based products right and the more important part of this is not just the fact that Americans already had a taste for sugar in the 1760s, but it also gives Britain the power to try criminal cases on the water. So if you were caught stealing from a store, that's a criminal case. Well, why would I put you before an American judge? Why? The American judge is probably going to be sympathetic to you. The American judge is probably going to say, hey, you know what? That's your first offense. I'll go easy on you. And so under Grenville's orders as, a, as prime minister, 
he wants these criminals taken out on the water and he wants them tried by a British Navy captain who is not going to show mercy, who is going to punish them as much as possible by the law. And as you can imagine, this starts to create panic in the Americas and people don't want to pay the tax. And if people don't pay the tax, now they're a criminal and they can be tried on the water. And this is also where we're going to start to go after smugglers like John Hancock and others, right? Trying to get around these tariffs and these extra taxes on goods. You know, if, if John Hancock gets something from a Dutch trader, right? He's got to pay a tax on that. But he's going to try and go around and make sure nobody notices that he got it from a Dutch trader. And the British are going to go out and try and find people like John Hancock and say, no, 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 you're ducking taxes. We're going to take you out and we're going to put you in jail. All right. So we have the Sugar Act first. Next is the Stamp Act of 1765. It requires a special embossed paper with a British stamp for all newspapers, legal documents, licenses, paper products, right? That's what we're taking a look at in the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act is unique because it affects every colonist in one way or another, right? And this is going to lead to a new round of protest. And again, this whole thing of, no, 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 only American laws should affect Americans, right? These laws being made by Grenville and these other long white-haired idiots in Parliament in Britain, they shouldn't affect us, right? It, those laws should only affect them. If we're going to have taxes, they're going to be American taxes. And so again, this leads to this new round of protests and this new round of refusal to pay the taxes. And so now we get the Townshend Acts in around 1770 because now we're having an economic recession and everybody's going crazy because it just doesn't seem like there's enough money to go around, let alone pay the taxes on all this extra stuff that the British keep trying to tax to to refill the bank account. And so British soldiers took jobs on their free time, just extra side jobs, right? It could be working down at the docks, it could be working in a factory of sorts, or a mill, or wherever. So British soldiers are taking these jobs, and they get these jobs over American colonists purely based on threats, right? If you don't hire the British soldier, well, that's not going to look too good for you in the end, right? And... There's going to be these protests in Boston where people who are unemployed are getting very, very upset that they're losing jobs to these British soldiers that they don't want around anyway and all these taxes and people can't put food on the table for themselves and their family. Now, my World Civ teacher, Mrs. Rankin, always made this point. She said, you know you're in trouble and you know that something bad is about to happen when people across the country can no longer put food on the table for their families. Like, we'll sleep in gutters, right? We'll do menial, tedious, just stupid work if we have to, as long as we can be fed. The moment we're no longer being, we no longer have the ability to feed ourselves, that's when you know, you know that something bad is going to come. And that's what's happening in Boston, right? The lower class, the low middle class is really struggling to feed their families. And even the people who are in higher classes who could help take care of these lower classes are no longer being able to do it. So you know something bad is going to happen. And that leads to this protest where some American colonists are jawing with the British soldiers. There's some snowballs that get thrown. One pops the British soldier. 
Don't know what happened. All of a sudden he starts firing. Five colonists die. Some are mortally wounded. Others are injured. But this is the spark, man. This is the great story, right? Colonists are dead at the hands of British soldiers. That's all you have to put in a newspaper. All of a sudden, everybody, top to bottom, is now paying attention in the colonies. And we're all looking at Boston. And we're going to see what's going to happen, right? Well, what happens, duh, is more taxes by the British. Hey, how dare you protest all these taxes? How dare you not pay these things, right? We don't want British soldiers there, but your bad attitude makes us have British soldiers there. It's all very convoluted and tricky philosophy. And so they passed the Tea Act, right? And colonists drink between five to 10 cups of tea a day, which seems insane. And I guess it kind of is, but five to 10 cups of tea a day, that's a lot. So why not just put a tea tax, which is exactly what the British do. And they do this to save the British East India Company, which is a government-owned business, right? And if you can save a government business, well, then you're going to start making a lot of money back as well. So protesters board ships and dump tea on December 16th, 1773. And a monetary amount of tea that they dumped in the harbor would have been over a million bucks today. Now, if you have an opportunity, I want you to go to the store and I want you to go look at how much tea costs. I drink tea. I love peppermint tea. I love those sleepy time teas. I mean, herbal teas are something I, I really enjoy. You realize you can get 30 packets for like two or three bucks of tea. I mean, it's a lot of tea that you've got to put in a harbor for somebody to lose a million bucks. So as you can imagine, the British have had it, right? For 10 years now, they've tried to put taxes on the Americans to make it fair because in their mind is there's no reason why it's fair that Americans are paying a quarter of the taxes that everybody else is, right? There's no way it's fair that the Americans fight a war and then don't have to pay for it. It's n there's no way it's fair that the Americans continually protest and nothing seems to happen to them, right? As a teacher, as a coach, as a parent, I can tell you discipline is 100% one of the hardest things that I do right? Because you have to find how are we going to motivate somebody to change their behavior. And what it can be for one child is not the same as another. And so the British have had it, right? These continued taxes that aren't working, these outright refusals to by the Americans to comply with the laws. So now the British are saying, you know what? A little bit of a military presence is not enough. Now it's time to, to really like kick him in the butt a little bit. And so the British Parliament passes the Massachusetts Government Act and it revokes the colonial charter of this colony of Massachusetts and then installs a royal governor. So now a Brit is going to be controlling Massachusetts. Not an American, a Brit. And more troops are going to be sent to Massachusetts because it's where we're having the most problems with protest. And so the new governor comes in there's a new general that comes in leading all these troops, and their whole job is calm everything down. Well, in all these protests, American colonists are starting to carry guns, right? Because heaven forbid the Boston Massacre happen again, and we don't have something to defend ourselves. So more and more colonists are carrying guns. These protests are starting to turn a little bit more hostile, 
And the general says, you know what? Let's sit down. Let's sit down and talk. Let's see if we can figure out a way. But we're not going to be able to do this if you have a gun. So the new general starts to confiscate guns. And this is why the Second Amendment is about the right to bear arms, right? So General Gage is who it is. And he is going to go after the Massachusetts militia. He says, I'm going to put down the militia. I'm going to take their guns. And then we're going to sit down. We're going to have a talk. And we're going to figure all this out. We're going to be adults, right? But he wants to take their guns. And as soon as the colonists hear about that, they need no more motivation, right? As if bad taxes weren't enough, as if unfulfilled and broken promises weren't enough. You come after my guns. You come after my home. You come after the, my ability to feed my family. It's on. And so General Gage was met by American militiamen at Lexington, which is just outside of Boston. Nobody knows who fires the first shot. It's the shot heard around the world, right? There's a great Schoolhouse Rock video with that. And then the British, after a scuffle at Lexington, are marching to Concord. There's more fighting. And we now know that the British are coming, right? This is Paul Revere's famous ride. The British are coming. The British are coming. And the guns are hid, they're taken away. The Americans are able to at least distract and kind of push back the British enough. And here we go, war is upon us. So, 11 years. 11 years is all it takes to go from the end of the French and Indian War to now the American Revolution. And how did we get there? Broken promises, bad taxes bad government decisions, right? You make people feel like they're not in control anymore. And when you actually then enforce things to where people lose that control, you lose your people, right? And here we are. War is now upon us. We have officially fired shots at the British and we've got to do something about it. Now we've got to back it up. Ladies and gentlemen, the American Revolution.